The difference between us and someone who just sits and espouses, go out and make a change in the world, go out and, you know, help somebody, is that we're actually doing it. Like we're doing it every single day. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and this is episode 250. So one, I'm so grateful and honored that each and every one of you who tune in to listen to the show have been with us this long. If you've been with us from the beginning, thank you. If you're new, thank you even more. And when I started the show, I envisioned interviewing people who truly give of themselves and change the world. And our guest today is the living embodiment of that mission. His name is Mick Eveling. He's been named by Fortune Magazine as one of the top 50 world's greatest leaders and the only person honored two times by Time Magazine for a top inventor of the year. He's also the recipient of the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award and listed as one of the world's most influential creative people by the Creativity 50s. Mick Ebeling started a movement of pragmatic, inspirational innovation as a career producer and filmmaker, and now founder and CEO of Not Impossible. Ebeling harvests the power of technology and story to change the world. I can't wait for him to share his stories with you. Mick, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is awesome, awesome to have you here with us today. Thanks, Dr. Richard. Really good to be here. So... There's so many things we could talk about, and it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose because I know you're doing so many amazing projects. Take us back. I know you haven't invented a time machine yet, but you know I know you you do things that are impossible and make them possible. So go back in time with us. Talk to us about what put you on the path you're on today. It was a beautiful accident. I had a date night, absconded. By a friend of mine, uh, one of my closest friends in the world, he took us to a gallery event. Once I found out I was going to a gallery event, I went very begrudgingly. That event ended up being a fundraiser for a paralyzed graffiti artist named Tony Tempt Kwan, who in the course of the night, I ended up meeting his father and brother and discovered that the reason everybody had gathered together was to help pay for his hospital bills and his care because he had ALS, he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And that was the first time I really had heard anything about Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS besides, you know, reading about it occasionally on our scene of a show or, or something online about Stephen Hawking. I discovered that the only way that he was able to communicate was through a piece of paper called a letter board, which is a piece of paper with the alphabet on it. And his caretaker would run his hand along the page. And then when his finger would get to a letter that Tempt wanted, he would blink. And then they would write that down and they would start again, finger, letter, blink, finger, letter, blink. 
And that to me was just, I, I live in LA and the thought that somebody in LA, one, didn't have a Stephen Hawking machine, right? That because his parents didn't make the right amount of money, they didn't have the right insurance because these things were so cost prohibitive. So first things first, it was not something that everybody had access to. So now a father and a brother are sitting there having a conversation with me, telling me about the fact that their son or their brother is only able to communicate with a, with a piece of paper and an alphabet and a finger. That was just this moment for me that was, I, as a father and a brother, just said, okay, this is ridiculous. And so, and this is the hyper condensed version of it. I committed right there to get him a Stephen Hawking machine and then said, well, wait a second, if a Stephen Hawking machine lets you move your eyes back and forth and then the computer tracks your eyes and that selects the letters, then the robot talks, why don't we figure out how to hack that or come up with a cheaper way to do that? But let's actually take out the letter selection part and let's make it so your brother can draw again. Let's make it so as he moves his eyes back and forth, that moves the cursor on the screen. That's the paintbrush. That's the graphite. That's the spray paint can. That's he can he can now do his art again. And they kind of when I, you know, in the course of these conversations, they kind of looked at me like, what are you crazy? And I ended up at that moment, you know, that's a very operative and significant moment in the history of non impossible because that when I committed to doing that, when I told him I could do that, I had no business, zero business saying that I could, but seeing that absurdity, seeing that someone who lives 13 miles from where I live in Venice Beach in a city like Los Angeles with a GMP greater than most developing nations and seeing a father and a brother and their pain and their just frustration, not being able to talk to their son or their brother and me committing to doing something that I had zero business, zero business saying that I could do. That is what we call commit and then figure it out. And that is a fundamental part of how we operate. And fast forward, I convened a bunch of crazy people to my house, flew them in from all over the world. These guys are brilliant programmers and hackers and makers and engineers. Over the course of time, we've came up with a, a device made of cheap sunglasses from the Venice Beach boardwalk, coat hangers that we duct taped to the side, old web cameras that we cracked open and used the guts, zip tied those to the front of the hanger that we bent around to the front of the eye. That web camera, those old guts would focus back on the pupil. Then we wrote some really smart code and plugged that into just any old laptop. And that device, we took it to his hospital room and with his family and friends gathered downstairs in the parking lot, that $85 device that we made with his family and friends watching allowed this artist to draw again for the first time in seven years. And so that was this moment of like, holy cow, you know, people were laughing and cheering and crying. And funny enough, so that, that wasn't the origin of Not Impossible. That was the that was the moment where we were like, this is amazing. And then we all went home and then we all went back to our day jobs. But then we woke up and it was Time Magazine, our first Time Magazine top invention of the year and TED Talks and press. And it's now part of the permanent collection at the MoMA in New York City. And, and we went, I went, holy cow, what's just happening right now? Because I had come from the entertainment space and in the entertainment space, 
you make a good ham sandwich and you do a press release about it. You know, like you, every, you, you promote anything and everything all the time. That's why there's so much PR in LA. We didn't do any PR with this. And this thing went bigger than we could ever imagine. So that really questioned from me, for me, this, well, maybe, maybe this is what I should do with my life. And so I started contemplating and thinking about well, what, what if I started to use technology to help people? And, and I thought a lot about it. It was just one of those, you know, when there's something gets caught in your head and you can't, you just wake up every day thinking about it. And in the end, after thinking about it and meditating on it, talking to family and friends about it, mentors, praying about it, decided, no, nah, I, I got lucky. It was a total luck. Just, you know, save the press clippings for your grandkids and enjoy this Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame, but, you know, ride this one out. And almost the moment that I made that decision, I got an email from the artist and it said, the email said, that was the first time I'd drawn anything for seven years. I feel like I've been held underwater and someone finally reached down and pulled my head up so I could take a breath. And that was the start of Non Impossible Labs because you can't get an email like that and just go back to your day job. So didn't know what we were going to do or how we were going to do it or what the model was. But that was this moment of like, all right, this this is selected me and I, I got to I just got to go do something. Hey, guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. You know, one of the things that we do disservice to people's stories is we have to compress them because of the nature of how long we have to talk on a show. But essentially, you're a Hollywood guy who happenstance winds up in an art gallery to raise money for this kid and your life has completely changed. And what I love about your story, Mick, you're not a, a a PhD scientist who has spent years in a lab. You're just a guy who said, this is crazy. I want to do something about it. And I imagine that for as many people who thought this was amazing, you probably had a whole bunch of people in your ear telling you you were a lunatic as well. Yeah. At the time, my company was, we were one of the, probably the top three top five animation production companies in the world. We had offices in Toronto and London and San Francisco and Rio and, and LA. We were just, I mean, we were, we had, were crushing it. We were doing, we were doing amazing work, top of our game. So, you know, imagine, I don't know, imagine Steph Curry or LeBron James retiring at the peak of their career after they won the MVP and then saying, you know, I'm going to walk, I'm out. I'm going to go, I'm going to go try farming or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's totally different, not even sports related, you know? And so that's, uh, that's what happened. 
That's really amazing. And so tell us about what happened next. Tell us about the next big project you guys took on. Well, what happened next was a lot of fear. Let's be really truthful right. here, right? There's like not knowing what the hell we were doing, you know, trying to, you know, elegantly transition, which I don't think I transitioned very elegantly from one to the next, but just having this, just, just this passion, this drive for what I was doing or trying to figure out what I was going to do. And along the way, I went out to dinner with a friend of mine and he told me about a doctor who was over in Sudan named Dr. Tom Katana and said, you got to go research this guy. You're going to love him. And so I researched him and found out that he was this incredible missionary, Mother Teresa-esque doctor in this region called the Nuba Mountains, which is this region between Sudan and South Sudan. He is the only doctor in the, within a 1500 mile radius to, to do any medical procedures from pull teeth, draw bloods, deliver babies, like he's the only guy. And it talked about, you know, his story. And I was really enthralled with the story and the deeper I dug in, you know, just kept going, going deeper and deeper. And it talked about the one thing that this Dr. Tom hates to do is to perform amputations. And digging into that, the reason he's performing amputations is because the current reigning president of Sudan at the time was running this campaign of terror over the people of the Nuba Mountains. And he would roll these 55-gallon drums filled with jet fuels and shrapnel out of the back. They would hit the ground, spray shrapnel everywhere. That would either kill you or maim you, right? And for context, this is the guy who brought you the genocide of Darfur, right? So this is the kind of the nasty guy he is. So I'm in this story, like you gotta imagine after dinner, I'm at home, whole family's asleep. It's late at night, all the lights are off. I'm at the kitchen counter reading through this on my iPad. And it talks about this one particular boy named Daniel who was out tending his family's goats and cows because it's a larger agrarian society. And here the bombers come, he had no place to run, no place to hide. So he looked around this open field, he saw a tree, ran, got behind a tree. The bomb ended up going off really not far from him. So it was very fortunate, very lucky that he was behind the tree. But unfortunately he wrapped his arms around the tree so his body was protected from the blast, but because his arms were on the other side, it blew off his arms. And there's an image that you can search and it's just gut-wrenching, right? This little boy with both of his arms blown off. And that was the image that I saw late at night, right? And what got me was not what the image kind of did to me, but when he woke up, he said, if I could die, I would, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. And that kind of just, he's 12. He's 12. I had a 12 year old who was asleep just down the hallway and I couldn't imagine him saying that. So back to that, the mantra that we, that happened to us at the iWriter, which is commit and figure it out. I was like, all right, here we go. Woke up the next day, told my wife, same thing. We flew all these crazy people to our house. We started to pack and kind of go through similar processes we did through the iWriter way harder. I wouldn't say if it was harder, but different. And we were cockier, which we kind of got, we got served. We got served hard because we kind of came in with this confidence and we just got smacked down. But luckily and fortunately, we, you know, there's brilliant, beautiful, inspiring people who had attached themselves to our project and they kind of picked us up and carried us across the finish line. And so we, I, I eventually learned how to make an arm for him because our whole mission was how do we, how do we go into this remote village in Sudan and make it so he 
not only can have an arm, but that the arms could be continued to be made afterwards as well. And so that's what we did. We had this incredible, just brilliant, practical. He, he was a handyman who had lost his fingers in a table saw accident in South Africa. And he invented something called the RoboHand. His name is Richard Van Oss. And he helped us figure out, you know, a better way to make an arm in these refugee camps. And one thing led to another and problem after failure, after success, after failure, after success. And we finally got to the finish line. And I uh, ended up showing up in this refugee camp and met Daniel and then eventually made his way, made my way to his village. And we launched the world's first 3D printing prosthetic lab that was powered by, you know, solar, solar batteries that were, you know, were gleaned from, from the hot sun in Sudan. And this boy fed himself for the first time in two and a half years with, a, with an arm that we had made for him. So that was, that was kind of our second at bat. Our first at bat was the iWriter. Second at bat was Project Daniel. And that thing went even bigger than Project Daniel. So that was that moment where like, okay, there's something here, right? There wasn't just a fluke, even though I had already bet the farm that it wasn't a fluke, there, there's something there. And then that really kind of put the, put the gas on the fire for not impossible. And you know, here we are today. It's amazing. I, you know, I certainly, from the standpoint of, you know, usability, I mean, there, there's a lot of people with, with, with ALS, there's a lot more people who are amputees or need prosthetics, veterans, and, and these things typically cost, you know, countless thousands of dollars, right? So yeah. what, what was, just out of curiosity, what was the cost to make Daniel's arm? You know, we wanted to do it for as cheap as possible. And, you know, if you don't amortize all the R&D and everything into it, like because right. we ended up taking it and publishing this open source so that everybody could have it, uh, it was less than a hundred bucks. That's absolutely remarkable. And, and do you do that with all of your projects? Do you open source it when possible so people so can? I, I did. You just invited me to hop on a soapbox. So here we go. Better or for worse. <laughs> I don't think we very much feel passionate about the fact that how you create impact in the world, how you take your swing at changing the world should not be judged by anything except for how do I create the most amount of impact in the world? That should be the question that you ask yourself. And so we, a lot of times people say, you know, I, I want to go, I want to go start a nonprofit and go, you know, help this or do that. It's like, so you're basically saying, I want to go talk to my accountant and get my, have my accountant tell me that I can go, or I want to go talk to the IRS and tell them, and they have the IRS tell me that I can go help someone. You're like, my response to that is no. Decide what you want to do and then decide the best way to scale it. Sometimes it's a nonprofit, sometimes it's open source, and sometimes it's a for-profit. And we have entities across the board and all the work that we've done at Non Impossible for the last decade that fulfill each of those categories. But you decide what you're, you decide the best vehicle to take to actually exponentially create impact after you've decided the impact that you actually want to have. I love that. So I'm very glad that we put you on your soapbox because it, there's so many people that, you know, they donate. Yes, they, you know, people like to donate, but they donate because there's a tax advantage for doing so or yeah. having a foundation or a nonprofit brings these tax benefits. So, you know, you're just saying, just do it. And I, and the fact that your, your motto, your mission is basically commit, then figure it out. 
yep. I think is something we can all identify with. I, I, you know, we often have people on the show who came from jobs that they hated, or even if they liked them, but they found a higher calling because they took the leap. They took the leap of faith. And even though every logical fiber in their being and the people in their peer group have said, wait, you're an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer, and you've been doing this and you're, and you're going to go do what? Much like, you know, Steph Curry or LeBron James. So I, I wish people would wake up in the morning and just, that's the first thing they would say to so commit and then figure it out because we would have so many more people in the world doing what fires them on the inside and fulfilling their true purpose rather than just clocking in and clocking out. And I would say right now, Dr. Richard, this is something that we're hyper passionate about is that the same way I don't feel that the IRS should have input on how you're going to create impact in the world, you should have that control. I also don't think that it always looks like quit your job and go do X. Right now, we have come out of a world that has been churned upside down, right? And we're finally at that point where people are taking a breath and they're kind of taking inventory and they might either cognitively are taking inventory or they subconsciously have taken inventory, but you start to see how people have, what, how people have decided to live their life, right? And the easy, easy things are that it used to feel like you needed to be wherever your company was based and you needed to work your way up the ladder and you needed to do this and you needed to do that. And, you know, look, look at the financial services. If you wanted to have any kind of significant place in the financial services world, there was a couple, you know, cities in the world that you needed to be based. And that would be the, not the case anymore. You know, Zoom towns have popped up. People have said, wait a second, I don't want to live in Manhattan anymore. I want to live in the country. Boom. They moved out to Vermont or Bend, Oregon or wherever. And now they're able to do that. So all of a sudden people went, wait a second, I don't have to abide by this preconceived assumption of the way that the world works. Well, what has also happened now, and this is kind of to bring this full circle, you also have seen what has resulted is the great resignation. People are, I don't need to abide by the way that companies used to have relationships with their employees. Now that relationship is more, I guess, interrelated such that the employers feel lucky to have employees. You have right now human capital, not capital. There's, there's a glut of money in the world right now, especially in the investment community. It's crazy how much liquidity there is in the market. You know what there isn't? Human capital. So human capital is at an absolute premium. Well, because of that, you can choose to go quit your job and go do something. Or one of the things that we advocate for is to take inventory and say, what if you use the vehicle of your company? What if you use the power that employees have now at their company to say, I'm going to use my current employer, my current employment situation, and I'm going to create impact there because I can use the power of many. I can use the power of this existing infrastructure to go create impact. And that's something that, that at Not Impossible right now, we are really, really passionate about is what's the best way to create impact? I believe right now there's this 
moment in time where you leverage the desire of employees and, and people, human beings, to have purpose and meaning in their lives and feel like they're not just you know, working for the man or the woman. They're just like, they're just coming and making donuts every day. But now that there's a, there's a greater purpose and employers are seeing this is the way for us to actually have a more engaged employee base and workforce is that, that we have to create this, this Petri dish where they can thrive within the context of whatever we're making or selling or doing or providing at a company. But if it has a greater purpose, then that keeps people happy. It retains them. It, it's easier to recruit people and more impact happens in the world. And then here's the craziest thing. There's so many studies, so many studies that prove that companies that stand for something greater than what they sell or do or make or provide actually grow faster than companies that don't. The companies that just, ju they just do what they do. And their customers will select them over other customers or other, other over companies. So wait a second. So now what you're saying is I can keep employees. I can recruit employees. I can grow faster. And my customers want to work with me if I'm doing good in the world. That, Dr. Richard, is a very technical term. And that is called winner, winner, chicken dinner. Chicken dinner. I love it. Everybody <laughs> wins. Everybody wins in that scenario. But I, I think that that is interesting because one of the people that I was privileged to have early on in the podcast was Bob Berg, who wrote The Go-Giver and talks about that your company should have a contribution. It shouldn't just be about the dollars and cents. It should be making an impact in the world. And he was kind of on an island when he came out with that book in the late 90s. And certainly because of the generational change in the workplace, but COVID has had an impact, as you said, the pendulum has swung and we're seeing so many more businesses that are mission driven, that are actually, and not just saying it because it's a buzzword, but actually to their core are trying to make that impact. So I'm so grateful that you brought that up because I think it's so important. And, and I think that now the beautiful thing is that used to have be a conversation that you would have with someone who was driving CSR, corporate social responsibility. Or, you know, now there's been different roles that have been invented within that space. What we espouse is that the person, the role that we want to get behind this, and this is very intentional, is the CFO, the chief financial officer. Because if the CFO looks at this and says, wait a second, how much does it cost me to have have employee churn? How much does it cost me to recruit people? How much does it cost me to try to retain people? How much does it cost me to actually get new customer acquisition? How much? Th these are all financial decisions. So if the CFO says, we have to stand for impact, we have to support what our employees want to do in terms of making impact in the world, and that's good for our bottom line, then nobody will refute that, you know? And that that is this beautiful, beautiful residual effect of the fact that now creating impact is actually a business strategy and not just this philanthropic endeavor of the past that you do it, you know, because you sponsor the local little league team, you know, you give to the American blank association, fill in the blank. It's now this is a, this is a strategy and it's a, that's a beautiful thing. Love it. I love it. I, I want to jump back to something you said kind of tongue in cheek, but I'd like to, 
to dig in because I, there's always lessons in in the struggle. You mentioned when you guys shifted from iWriter onto the Daniel Project, a little bit cocky, and you got served. You guys got served, but you had some brilliant people that, as you said, crossed to help you cross the finish line. Talk to us about some of the lessons, not just necessarily lessons in humility, but lessons that you guys learned along the journey that people listening to this would benefit from hearing. Honestly, one of the things that we espouse at Not Impossible is what we call egoless innovation, right? And our jobs when we initiate any of the crazy things that we're taking on is to assemble brilliant minds of people who are who are the leaders in their particular fields. But you cannot come into this sandbox, the not impossible sandbox, unless you check your ego at the door, but you, you double down on your passion and your intention, right? So bring your opinions, bring your passion, bring your argumentation, bring everything you want. But if you don't have the best interests of the project in mind, and we can see that's something you can feel and sense if it's more about the, the, you know, how you are the badass in this particular thing, then you can get voted off the island. That was taught to us through the going through Project Daniels that we had these brilliant minds play with us, and they were just there to try to help us win. They just wanted to help us win, and we would not have gotten there without them because we thought that we were hot shit when after coming out of the out of the iRider. We thought that we could do no wrong. And I'm so glad that we got that lesson served to us because now we know and we actually really adopt this. We always try to be the dumbest guy or girl in the room. We always come in there with this, this feeling that we've done. You said at the beginning, I don't have any degrees or diplomas or credentials or things that entitle me or you know, externally empower me to be able to, to claim that I can do something or can't do something. And because of that, you, you don't have a choice but to enter into the conversation with, with your, your ego in check. And now we see that as a strategic advantage is that everyone kind of comes there. And the way that we do that is through this mission, this, again, we're, we're, our mantras, we have a few mantras that we live by here, but one of those is, is help one, help many, because we don't start any initiative saying let's solve ALS or communications issues around ALS, or let's solve the problem of, you know, inaccessible prosthetics or the, the reason or the fact that the deaf cannot experience music or, 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 or all these things. We start with who's the one person that we can help. Because we know that if we focus it on helping that one person, then when things get tough, and they always will get tough, then everyone can kind of result back to and refocus on, oh, we're doing this for Daniel. So I might be in a, in a huge, you know, spat with you, like a positive spat, but I might be totally disagreeing with you, and it's starting to get personal. And then we just look up, and there's a picture of Daniel on the wall. And then we, okay, all right. Here we go. All right. Well, what's the best way? And it, and it just grounds you back in the reason that we're doing this in the first place. So beautifully said. I know you mentioned that at Not Impossible Lab, you have a blend of for-profit, nonprofit. People listening to this get fired up. And, and of course they will, because this is amazing work you're doing. How can they contribute? I, I get asked that every single podcast, every single speech, every single interview. 
my answer is always the same. Go out and change your world and the world. That's the first thing, right? Just make a decision, find an absurdity and go out and change that absurdity and help one person. Full stop, case closed, shut the door, shut the computer, podcast over, right? If you wanna get involved with non-impossible, then look at some of the things that we are doing and see if there's some type of attraction that you have to what we're up to. And if there is, then get in touch with us and, and tell us, tell us, you know, what your ideas are and what you would like to see happen. And, you know, but what we really, really have gotten clear on is that the difference between us and someone who just sits and espouses, go out and make a change in the world, go out and, you know, help somebody is that we're actually doing it. Like we're doing it every single day. So I so think... I, I think you answered the question that I was about to ask you to follow this up. And, and that was so well said was your biggest helping Mick, the, the one most important piece of information for somebody to walk away with. And I think you just said it is go out there today and make change. Yep. I love it. And, 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 and the way that we say it is go out and find one person. The question that I ask every single time I'm having a conversation with someone, I say, Oh, you know, I want to do something. I go, great. One question, who is your one? Who is your one? Find one person. Just find one person and go out there. Maybe you drive by them, you walk by them, you read about them like I did. Maybe you, whatever it might be, find one. You're really, really committed to whatever it might be, whatever that cause could be, right? Great. Just go start with one person. Because if I asked you, hey, Dr. Richard, do you want to help me solve hunger in this country? Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. By the of way, you shook your head a little bit. For those of you who can't see him, he shook his head a little bit and he had a positive look on his face. But, you know, that's a big thing. Hunger, that's a big issue. If I said, hey, coming to the podcast today, I biked by a homeless encampment and I know all the people there. And there's one guy out there named Jimmy who's a homeless vet. And he's really, he's a good guy. He's struggling to kind of put his life back together. After this, we're going to be done in a couple minutes. I'm going to go out and buy him breakfast. Hey, Dr. Richard, do you want to Venmo me a couple bucks and we can go buy him breakfast today? Boom. Before I even finished the question, you were shaking your head up and down. Why? Because now solving hunger just looks like solving it for one person, right? That's easy. Okay. Now let's do it again. Now let's do it again. Now let's do it again. And then you're like, okay, now I've done this. I've kind of built this muscle. Now what else can I do? It feels like I need to do more. What else can I do? So, so that is for us, it always comes down to helping one person. In fact, if you look right now at one of the initiatives that we're so passionate about, and I'll, I'll talk about this and we can, we can wrap it up. I could talk forever about the stuff that we do and not impossible, but we launched a food security platform called Bento. And Bento was based on this, this recognition of this absurdity that there's 50 million people in this country who are food insecure. What does food insecure mean? Does it mean starving? Does it mean homeless? No, no. There's 650,000 homeless people in this country. There's 50 million people who have jobs. They have apartments. They're working multiple jobs. They're, they're struggling. They're maybe they're in school. They're struggling to kind of keep it all together. They've got, you know, families, but they're maybe one paycheck away from being out. Right. They're, they wait on us at our table, at our restaurants. They, they do so many things for us. They're intertwined with how we exist as a culture. And they don't know where their next meal is coming from. 
because they've got out of 21 meals a week, set three meals at three meals a day, seven days a week. Maybe they've got 15 of them. Maybe they've got 14. So they're constantly living in this struggle of trying to figure out where their next meal, you know, do I have three meals a day or two meals a day? What am I going to go to bed hungry? But they're going to still wake up the next day and go to work. So I just said, all right, this is crazy. We got to do something about this. So the hyper condensed summary of this is that we launched a platform, a text-based platform that we give to nonprofits, we give to healthcare plans, we give to any the VA, any organization who has a constituency of people that they know are food insecure. And then that organization is able to help fund meals for them where that person on their phone via text is able to text the word order that starts this two, this three prompt system. They type the word order, then it populates restaurants that are close to them. They choose the restaurant, that's the second text message. Then it populates a list of menu items from that restaurant, all healthy, we curate it so that it's all healthy menu options. They choose the, the healthy menu option. And the last thing they do is they walk into the restaurant and they walk in and they say, hi, my name is Dr. Richard. Hi, my name is Mick. And they have a meal that was prepared for them that they get to pick up and walk out. And the person at the restaurant has no idea that that, that person is any different than the five people in line behind me. They just look like anybody else who's picking up a meal to go. So that person gets to order at their convenience because they're in between jobs or they don't have to tromps all the way across town and go wait in line someplace to try to get a free meal. They get to do it and it's healthy. Everything's curated for nutrition. But the most important thing and why we've been so successful thus far with this is they get to walk in and walk out with their dignity. That, that to me is, is kind of the most recent and most powerful articulation of what we're at about at Not Impossible is how do you create what we call technology for the sake of humanity? simple technology that does and accomplishes so many different things. So that, if you want to find it, it's called Bento. If you can go to gobento.com and see more about this, but to your question, Hey, if people wanted to help out, first of all, I'll go back to my first question, which is go choose your one, just go choose your one. If you still want to help out with the stuff we're doing on impossible, then you can go to notimpossible.com and you can go make a donation. And that money right now, we're channeling a lot. You can call that out that that money will go towards feeding that person that I just told you about down the street. It goes to feeding one person. Amazing. And we'll have the links that you talked about in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. So for those of you on a run, we got you covered. Mick, this has been so awesome. I love everything you're doing. I can't wait to see what you guys do for years to come. I wish we had more time to talk about it because I know you got a bunch of other really cool projects, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing with all of us today. Thanks so much. And to each and every one of you who listened to this, I want to thank you as well. If you like what you heard, go give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.